Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. We're going to finish Hebrews chapter 6 today. And the Lord's titled the message, The Anchor for Our Soul, because it's straight out of one of the verses we're going to cover today. But Hebrews 6, if you remember, as we're going through this, we finished last time two weeks ago with better things ahead. And so because of these warnings, why should you heed the Lord? Well, it's because there are better things ahead. And as you really think about diving in to the difficulty of the book of Hebrews, it is, it is a challenging book, right, as it's taken us this long just to get here we, where we are today in, in chapter 6. But it's, there's so much meat in the book of Hebrews, which is why it's so important that we lean completely on the Holy Spirit to teach us everything through the book and to have confidence when Jesus returns for us, the unashamed bride, right? And to have confidence if we heed these warnings that are in the book and the structure around it, it will, from 1 John 2.28, give us confidence, complete confidence at his appearing. So the book is, is for us. It's always for the believer, There's nowhere in the book on how to get saved, so don't forget this is a book for us and our walk with the Lord. So on the outline here, we're down in this new and better priestly covenant, and the Lord is about to connect at the end of this chapter a verse about Melchizedek all the way back from chapter 5. And so he's coming full circle to close chapter 6 here, which is going to be really... But don't forget, Jesus offered a better sacrifice for his once and for all. He provides better promises, and he opens the sanctuary for all. And so we have a better covenant, a better priestly covenant under Jesus, our high priest. These five warnings that we've been going through, the danger of drifting, the danger of hardening the heart, and danger of failing to mature. So we're writing that, that third warning, the end of it, as to we went through the warning and they're ahead because he is an anchor for our soul to close chapter six here. And then after we close this one, there's really only two left. It's a few chapters down the road here, but the danger of willful sin and the danger of refusing. And don't forget these five dangers that are in the book of Hebrews. The whole book is structured around. It is a pattern. So one builds off of the other, ultimately culminating with apostasy. And so that's That's the danger, that as a believer, you can eventually walk far enough away from your faith that you no longer trust in the Lord. Now, you don't lose your salvation, obviously, and then there's a whole difference between apostates that were never saved and apostates that were saved but then walk away from the faith. There is a difference there biblically. But as we're going through this, the warnings are in place because God wants you to have a better position in him, so don't forget that. You have a better position ahead of you. There are things waiting for you on the other side of this world that are, I promise, and we're going to see this in Romans today, that will make everything you faced here pale in comparison. And he does not forget your work and labor. Okay, don't forget that. We covered that last time with better things ahead. He does not forget the work where you have labored toward and endured for his kingdom. And Isaiah 40, verse 31, that's one of my favorites for us as believers, walking with him today. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. So that pattern is important. Don't forget that. You are in a walk with the Lord, and walking takes endurance. It takes patience. It takes time. It takes a lot of effort and intentionality. It's easy to get saved right away or or get ignited with this fire from the Holy Spirit and be sprinting out of the gate, but you can grow weary really quick. So the key is to walk here. Walk with the Lord. 
the book is built upon these five warnings we've been covering because that kingdom is at hand. And it's because better things are ahead that you have hope as an anchor for your soul because there is a kingdom coming that Jesus is going to set up in Jerusalem. And that's, that's why we, we now in this life right now have an anchor for our soul, which is amazing. So last time we closed with, in that message, Better Things Ahead, these three verses, Hebrews 6, 13 through 15, for when God made promise to Abraham because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, surely blessing I will bless thee and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. So don't forget, Abraham attained, obtained the promises of God through walking, through patient endurance. Okay, it took a long time. Remember, it was 24 years it took him to have Isaac. So he was 75 when he got the promise, and then it took 24 years later. So he obtained it through a lot of patience. He walked around looking for a kingdom, a city whose maker was God, which that, that verse in Hebrews later on has always blown me away. Abraham had the promise of the new city, the new Jerusalem, and he was walking around looking for that city and never found it. But he's going to inherit that promise later on. So you too will inherit and obtain the promises of God through patient endurance. That's the key. This life, although when you're day-to-day it seems long, it is but a vapor. It's such a short amount of time that you are here. But walking and trusting and abiding in the Lord, that's the key. So the verses today, we're going to cover these five verses. And what I thought we'd start with is just read them so you can get kind of the feel of the package. And then we'll go through one by one and break this down. But in Hebrews 6, verse 16, For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife, wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability, excuse me, of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner, that's Jesus, is for us entered, even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so an anchor for our soul. What does that mean? Hebrews 6.16, So for men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. So think about this. Today, every single courthouse in the United States, what happens before someone gets on the stand? They put their hand on the word of God, and they swear an oath. And as much as the world wants to bash the Bible and bash the word of God and say that God's not, not, not real, he doesn't exist, let's tear the Ten Commandments down, they still get on the stand, and for the trial to take place or the verdict or the, the case, whatever it is, to move forward, they have to put their hand on the word of God. Isn't that amazing? that even in the world in which we live, people still require that because they are swearing by something greater. You can't swear by anything greater than the word of God and God himself, and the courts know it. And so you still do that. The court then must take anything said afterward as truth, anything that's said. You can't debate whether your testimony was true or false. You put it on on the word of God. They have to accept it as truth. Now, you can defend against it and, and all of that, but it's amazing they have to accept that into the court record. So the oath ends any debate or strife about the testimony rendered. And that's exactly what the verse here is saying. For men verily swear by the greater, that's the Lord, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. So it ends it right there. You've given a, your oath. Now, an end of all strife, all of you know John 3.16, but you need to memorize James 3.16. It's easy to remember. Both 3.16, James and John. 
In James, though, look what it says. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. Every evil work. And envying and strife, there is nothing greater that the enemy likes to try to do than to get a foothold into churches and into Sunday schools and into the body of Christ and starting to create envying and strife. It's one of the ways that he gets churches to break up. It's one of the ways he gets small group fellowships to break up. It's one of the ways he gets into families, into marriages, into every relationship out there. The enemy uses this tactic all the time to get in and create envying and strife. Because what then happens? It creates confusion, and according to James, and every evil work. Well, we know who the author of confusion is from 1 Corinthians 14.33. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. So if God's not the author of confusion, then we know who is. It's the enemy. The enemy is the author of confusion. So verse 17, wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. So did you know that you too are an heir of the promise? Just like Abraham, you're an heir, but you're more than just an heir. You're a co-heir with Jesus. You are a joint heir with the one that spoke it all into existence. So look at Hebrews 1, 2. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things. So Jesus is the heir of everything, by whom also he made the worlds. Remember all the way back to Hebrews 1 when we covered that. That word in the Greek is, literally means time domains. So Jesus made the time domains. But he's the heir of all things. And then look at Romans 8, 16 through 18. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. So because Christ is made heir of all things, from Romans eight seventeen, you are a joint heir. You get to inherit the universe with him when this is all over. Now, how cool is that? That is amazing. But look at the condition here in verse 17. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. See, the Lord has special rewards for faithful service. And we've talked about that a lot in here. But even in the subtlety of the wording, of the, it's amazing how he picks that up over and over and over. Look at verse 18. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So anything you're going through right now, it will not even compare to what's on the other side of this. Just don't forget, you know, I'm, I'm 41 years old, so I don't know, on average in the United States of America, someone that fits my profile, I think the average age or lifespan is 72 I think, or 73 maybe. So what, I've got, according to them, I've got 31 years left. You know, it seems like a long time, but it goes by so fast. I just, I can't even, I can't believe how quickly this year is going by. It's almost June. But time is fleeting, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, about how the Lord says in the Word of God, remember to number your days, count your days. Don't take for granted. Time is the only resource that you are limited in and have no control over getting more. It's the only one. Everything else you can go and try to get more of, right? But time. So don't take time for granted. It's, it's fleeting. So in verse 17 here, the heirs of the promise. Okay, that's us. We're joint heirs with him. The immutability. So what is immutability? Immutability is meaning it's unchangeable, or not open to repentance, so to not turn away from. It's something you can't turn away from. It's immutable. God's counsel is immutable because it never changes. It never wavers. It's always going to give you the right answer. It's never going to let you down. You're going to find the greatest counseling on earth in the Lord himself, in Jesus. That's why he is immutable. And he is the counselor. We did a whole message on this a few weeks ago. But Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, 
and unto us a son is given. Those are not synonymous, by the way. Don't forget that. A child represents his humanity. A son represents his deity. He was the son of God, but he was born on our behalf. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. Praise God. Cannot wait for that, that day to happen. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. He is the Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So Jesus is our Counselor. So he is, because he's immutable and his counsel is the highest you can get from anywhere, that's why it's so fun when you have issues in your life to write them down and take those papers before the Lord and let him counsel you through anything you're going through, anything in your life. So in verse 18, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Okay, 2 Corinthians 13.1. This is the third time I'm coming to you. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. So that's what God is saying here in verse 18. Two immutable things, two witnesses. Everything's established. Okay, strong consolation who have fled for refuge. He's speaking about us. Now this word refuge is really important when you study it in the Bible. And my challenge question to you is, are you abiding in the refuge of the Lord? Are you truly abiding in the refuge? Do a word study on the word refuge. Go into Blue Letter Bible and just type in the word refuge and look at, read every single verse that comes up. It's incredible. So I just picked out a few for you here. Psalm 17, 8. Keep me as the apple of the eye and hide me under the shadow of thy wings. Psalms 91, 1. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Okay, these, it's, notice, it's abiding, so it's staying put under the shadow of the Almighty. Meaning, if you're under his shadow, you're close enough to him, right? Shadows don't go on forever. It's, it's a proximity thing, so think about that. So do you dwell in that secret place of the Most High? Now, this, this concept of taking refuge, it's all modeled through the cities of refuge, if you remember this from the Old Testament. So in Numbers 35, after the children of Israel have crossed the Jordan, they're conquering the promised land, the Lord sets up six cities of refuge, three east of the Jordan and three west of the Jordan. Now these six cities were appointed so that a place of refuge where if you committed man, what we call in our courts today manslaughter, inadvertent murder, you had a place to go for the manslayer to flee. Look at Numbers 35, verse 15. These six cities shall be a refuge both for the children of Israel and for the stranger and for the sojourner among you. So three groups of people. There's not a single person on planet Earth that didn't fit one of those three categories. A, a Jew, a Gentile, or someone just passing through. Okay, so everybody is welcome. That everyone that killeth any person unawares may flee hither. Okay, so it's applicable to everyone. So if you committed manslaughter, what we call second-degree murder, then you had a place to flee for preservation and protection until the high priest in Jerusalem died. That was the, the process by which they went through. So what, what they did was if you, in the example in the Bible, it actually gives you this example. If you were in the field and your axe head flew off, and it struck someone in the head and killed them. Okay, that was accident. It wasn't premeditated. It wasn't first-degree murder. You then had a place to run to for refuge as a mans for the manslayer not to get you. So if you committed second-degree murder and you could get to one of these six cities, you were safe. That was the way their, their system worked out biblically. But you had to stay in the city until the high priest in Jerusalem died. Now, when you're reading that in the Old Testament, you th would think, what, what is in the world does the high priest in Jerusalem have to do with me in this city of refuge? And then I can, after he dies, I can go free. Well, it's all modeling Jesus. The whole process is modeling our Savior. 
So these cities of refuge, they were typically up on a hill. The roads and the bridges had to stay open. The gates could never close. So it didn't matter what time you were fleeing to the city, you had access. You had access to that city. And the responsibility to take vengeance on you for committing accidental murder was in the hands of the kinsman redeemer. So we know that Jesus is our kinsman redeemer, right? He redeemed us. That it's all modeled in Ruth in Revelation 4 and 5. As our kinsman redeemer, he has to come forward and take the scroll. But he's also the avenger of blood. And that was the other role of the kinsman redeemer. And I, I didn't add these verses in the notes. So let's just read these real fast. If you have your Bible, go to Luke chapter 4, 16 through 21. So when Jesus opens his ministry, he goes into the synagogue, and he came to Nazareth, and he goes in, and he, and he reads this in Luke 4. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah, And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. And this is what he's reading from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book. And he gave it again to the minister and sat down, and the, all the eyes, the eyes of all of them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Now, he's reading from Isaiah chapter 61, the first two verses. So when you go back to Isaiah 61 and you start reading what he was quoting, you notice he, was, he left something out. So when you go to Isaiah 61, starting in verse 1, this is what it says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison, the prison that to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Okay, that's where he stops. So he stops at this comma in Isaiah 61, and what he didn't read is and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. See, that's not yet, but that is one of his roles. He, as the kinsman redeemer, he takes vengeance. He's also the avenger of blood. And what's the, what's the issue then here? Well, the issue is that everybody here, everybody that's ever lived, has committed second-degree murder with Jesus. And he says so on the cross. So go, go forward one more slide, Aaron. We covered those already. Yeah, there you go. So the crucifixion of Jesus, was it first or second degree murder? Well, from God's point of view, it was ordained from the foundation of the world. It was premeditated. The lamb slain before the foundation of the world in Revelation. But however, while on the cross, Jesus states in Luke twenty three thirty four, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He's attributing it to all of mankind as second-degree murder. Thus, we have, a, we have eligibility for a city of refuge, and that's the point, and you have to flee to it. It's always open. The gates are always open, and you stay there until the high priest died. Well, we know who our high priest is. It's Jesus. He's died, so you have the liberty and the freedom to go out. Now, to leave that city and to go out into the world and make disciples, serve the Lord, be in your community, etc. So, when you look at these six cities, our high priest has died, and so we've got freedom to go out. Can you go to the next one, Aaron? So, these six cities of refuge. Okay, you have Kadesh, which means holy place. Christ in the New Jerusalem is the ultimate refuge. Look at Revelation 21, 22. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. Shechem means strong shoulder, who has the strong shoulder upon which the government will ultimately reside. We just read that verse, Isaiah 9.6. Hebron means fellowship. In Christ, we have been called unto the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 
Bazaar means strong hiding place. We're promised that. Your life is hid with Christ in God, Colossians 3.3. Ramoth means high place. When we are hidden in Christ, God also has made us together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2.6. Golan means enclosure for captives. And this speaks of our being set free from sin and death to become captive to Christ from Ephesians 4.8. When he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. So even these six cities are prophetic in terms of our position in Jesus down the road, which is just incredible, these cities of refuge. And it goes back to one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, Psalms 40, verse 7, that in the volume of the book, it's written of him, speaking of Jesus. And so when you dig into all these little details throughout the Old Testament, it always points to Jesus. So once you flee for refuge... You then, look at the end of the verse 18 here, you then must lay hold upon the hope set before you. Hebrews 11.1. So now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. So the hope set before you, we know that faith and hope and love are all different things. Okay, they're all different. We're going to look at that in a second. But hope is buried in faith from Hebrews 11.1. 1. Romans 10.17, so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And John 1.14, and the word was made flesh and tabernacled amongst us and dwelt amongst us. That word dwelled is tabernacled in the Greek. So Jesus is the substance of all that we hope for. So we know that. Look at Hebrews 6.19 um, at the end here. The world's definition of hope. I got this off of Webster, I think. Hope is an optimistic state of mind that is based on an ex expectation of positive outcomes with respect to events and circumstances in one's life or the world at large. As a verb, its definition includes expect with confidence and to cherish a desire with anticipation. So think about hope as an earnest expectation an earnest expectation. But what does the Bible say about hope? Let's look at biblical hope. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 through 13. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. So that's one of the reasons why the disciples didn't need introductions to Moses and Elijah at the transfiguration, because you're going to get to heaven and everyone's going to know you without an introduction. They're going to know, oh, that's Mason, that's Matt, that's Chris, that's Ryan, that's Austin, whatever. They're all, that's John Eric. They're all going to know you. You won't even need to introduce yourself. And you're going to know them. And that's going to be incredible. You're going to know Elijah right when you see him. You're going to know David right when you see him. Isn't that amazing? You're going to be known as you know. So, and now abideth, look in 1 Corinthians 13 though, and now abideth faith, hope, and charity, or love in a lot of translations, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. So they're all three different things, faith, hope, and charity. They're different because they're listed separately. When you look at hope, hope occurs 130 times in 121 verses in the King James Bible, which is incredible. So the word has a lot to say about hope. Now, we've covered this before, but the law of first mention, the first place a word shows up in the Bible is very important. God sets the precedent from then on what that word is to mean in the rest of the Bible. And so where does hope show up first? Well, it happens to show up in the book of Ruth, chapter 1. It's the first place hope shows up. And it has to do with Naomi and being widowed. Now, how neat is that? The first place hope shows up is about a widow who needs a husband. In Ruth 1.12, Turn again, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say, I have hope. If I should have a husband also tonight, and should also bear sons. The hope of a widow to be married and espoused to a husband. It's the same hope we have as the church, right? Jesus is our bridegroom. And so we're, we're getting engaged, we're engaged, and the marriage is going to be in heaven before too long.
But hope shows up 15 times in the book of Job. And a lot of Christians really battle with the book of Job, but it's amazing because the whole book shows you who's in control from chapter 1, who sets the bounds between God and Satan. God does. He says, you can do everything to Job, but you can't touch him. Well, then Satan comes back. Well, of course he's still praising you. He has his health. And then the Lord says, okay, well, you can take his health, but you can't kill him. And so the, the boundary lines get tighter in this spiritual warfare, but God is ultimately in control. Everything that comes before you as a believer is father-filtered if you're in him. That's the key of the book of Job. But look at Job 27.8. For what is the hope of the hypocrite, though he hath gained when God taketh away his soul? Job 31.24. If I have made gold my hope, or have said to the fine gold, thou art my confidence. See, God is using hope sarcastically in Job there because... The hope in gold, there is no hope in gold. There's nothing to hope for. And I want you to notice as we go through this that hope is always tied to something in the future. Okay, I'm hoping for a delicious lunch. I'm hoping to see my mom later. I'm hoping for whatever, right? When you use that word, it's always tied to something in the future. So think about that. We have a great hope in the future with our king Psalm 16, 9, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. So your flesh rests in hope. It's something, again, tied to the future. Psalms 31, 24, Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart, all ye that hope in the Lord. Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy. For in thee, O Lord, do I hope. Thou wilt hear, O Lord, my God. And now, Lord, what wait I for? My hope is in thee. And this just continues all through the Bible. If you're waiting on the Lord, then your hope is in him. And the hope in him is the future you have in him. Yes, there's a lot of joy in the present when you're living for the Lord. But the hope you have in him is that you're going to be moved from a corruptible mortal body into incorruption and immortality. That's the hope at the rapture. So Psalm 71, 5, for thou art my hope, O Lord God, thou art my trust from my youth. Psalm 71, 14, but I will hope continually and will yet praise thee more and more. Psalms 119, verse 49, remember the word unto thy servant upon which thou hast caused me to hope. In Psalms 119, every verse starts with a letter of the Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew alphabet. So just that's why Zane is there, and then Calf in verse 81. My soul fainteth for thy salvation, but I hope in thy word. Verse 114, thou art my hiding place and my shield. I hope in thy word. Verse 116, uphold me according unto thy word, that I may live and let me not be ashamed of my hope. See, if you're ashamed of your hope, then you're not really understanding what lies ahead for you. Because if you truly understood the glory that waits you on the other side of all of this, you would never be ashamed of the hope you have in Jesus. Because it is to be an unashamed bride for him to take us home. That's what it's about, to have total confidence in him. So in verse 19... Finish this off. Which hope we have, so we covered hope, as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which entereth into that within the veil. So Jesus entered into the veil on our behalf. Remember, after, after he, was, he was in the tomb for three days, we know biblically he went down to Tartarus to tell the angels from all the way back in Genesis 6 that they did not succeed in their mission to corrupt the human genome. He declared victory over them. So he did that. You can find that in Peter and Jude. There's also a time that he takes that blood, though, and he walks in through the true veil, the true holy of holies in heaven, and he sprinkles it on the mercy seat, and he says, paid in full. And that's why that veil, when he's on the cross, it is ripped in half. It's torn down because you don't have to wait any longer. You can run in. 
you don't have to go through all of the ceremonies and the rituals and the sacrifices and all that stuff. You get open house to come in. He went into the veil on our, on our behalf. So he's the hope that we have and the anchor of our soul. Now, this is an interesting word choice by the Lord. Anchor of the soul. Now, we've covered you are a triune being. You are body, soul, and spirit, just like God, a triune being, Father, Son, and Spirit. You're triune. You have a body, you have a soul, and you're made up, and your spirit is what controls all of it. It's what gives it energy. So your soul is your mind, will, and emotions. So what's the purpose of an anchor? You know, that's a pretty straightforward question, right? An anchor is to keep you from going astray. It's, it keeps you grounded. It holds in place despite storms. When you park a boat at a, at a dock for a while, you want to make sure you anchor or, or you're tied off to the mooring or something that you're anchored to so it doesn't get taken by the waves or the tide or if a storm comes in or something. So it's amazing. He's the anchor of the soul. Remember the very first warning in Hebrews was the danger of drifting. So same thing, a boat not being tied down not having an anchor properly in place. So Jesus is the anchor to keep your mind, will, and emotions from going astray. So what are you to do? You're to run in and lay hold of that hope laid before you. That's what it says to do. So what, what is it like without Jesus as your anchor? Well, Jude covers this in a lot of detail you can go through, the book of Jude is amazing, but Jude verse 11, Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. These are spots in your feasts of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Clouds they are without water. There's no weight to them. They're not anchored anywhere. Carried about of winds, Trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. Raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame. Wandering stars, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. So if you're not anchored down, it's, it's almost like you are a cloud without water. You're just, you're carried about by the winds. You're not anchored. The storm comes. Some storm in your life hits you, Right? and you get all bent out of shape. Your mind starts going crazy. You let emotions take over, and they start controlling your spirit. You don't have joy and peace and absolute confidence that Jesus is the one that can rebuke and calm the storm because you're not anchored. You're being carried around everywhere, and you don't know where the waves are going to hit you from next. So in verse 20, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made an high priest, forever after the order of Melchizedek. So to close the chapter, the Holy Spirit's linking this all the way back to chapter 5. So this is where he started that initial thought of Jesus after the order of Melchizedek. It's all the way back in chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. Called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have many things to say, and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. That's what started that third warning all the way back in chapter 5. And so now that the Holy Spirit has encouraged us to press on to maturity, giving us the warning of failing to mature, and laid out the hope we have in Jesus because he's the anchor of our soul, and better things are ahead, he's now ready to expound on the Melchizedekian order, this priestly order that he said you couldn't I couldn't tell you more about it because you were dull of hearing. So this theme will pick up in chapter 7. And I included one verse from chapter 7, verse 21, just to give you an idea. For those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath, by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So that verse in chapter 7 picks up this whole concept we just went through of swearing an oath, not repenting, a new priestly order. And because he is our high priest after Melchizedek, he's an anchor for our soul. So when you run into the throne room of the universe, you have to lay hold of the hope that is before you. 
It's like running in and falling at the feet of Jesus and clinging to him, clinging to Jesus because he's the anchor. He won't, he's not going to let you go astray then, and that's the beauty of it. Okay, so with that, I'll close us with a few words here. So I don't know if any of you have noticed, but, but things in the, in the world are really picking up a lot. And there's a lot of great things happening in the United States. And, I, and we're going to talk about one of them here at the end of this. But I want you to, one of the things that I, I really, really struck me hard when I was out in Colorado last weekend at the conference. And what, what the Lord really started talking to me a lot about was how desperate he is for his people and for their affection and their love and for their worship and when you look around at, at a conference like that, it is you would think the things that we're covering and talking about out of the Bible and what lays ahead in, in the world, that there would be a stadium full of people, right, that would be so interested to know what in the world is going on in this earth and what is my future in it. But, you know, there were 800 people, tops, I think, and, and every day maybe half to... 60% of them showed up, right? They were kind of in and out. And not that, don't misunderstand, not that you had to be there to, <laughs> to, to be a part of what the Lord's doing or anything, but it just really struck me hard. Does this work still? Oh, there we go. It really struck me hard that the Lord is desperate for his people, and he, he is so desperate to sit with all of you in his word and just to teach you and to be with you and for truly an unashamed bride. He, he wants to come back to a bride that is victorious and to take us home. And when you look at all these things, these different speakers were talking about and laid out against the world and there is so much happening prophetically in the word of God that's being set up. It is, it is speeding quickly it is, it's like a tachometer, just like Jesus said. When these things begin, they will begin very suddenly and very quickly. And when you look at the world, it is all happening so close. The temple is almost ready to be built. Uh, one of the speakers made a comment that, well, the temple, I, I'm paraphrasing. He may not have said this word for word. But he said, you know that we, need, we probably need to be raptured before that temple gets built because there can't be two temples on the earth at once. I thought that was a really interesting comment he made. The only time I could think of there being two temples on the earth was the span of one generation from 32 AD after the church was founded until 70 AD when Titus and the Roman legions came in and destroyed the temple. There's a 38-year overlap there, which just happens to be the same time the children of Israel wandered the wilderness, in which, in which time the Holy Spirit wrote the book of Hebrews to get them to leave that system. But there is so much going on in the world today. And when you are living with the, with the fervency and the heart of, I'm going to go home at any minute now, and the Lord is going, to is going to take me up and watch me doing something. I'm going to be doing something, right, when he calls me home. The question is, what is that? Will you be serving him? Will you be praying on your knees in your bedroom for your spouse or your kids or your friends or whomever? Will you be encouraging someone, you know, calling a friend and just giving them a word of encouragement and saying, hey, I've been, you're on my mind. How can I pray for you today? You know, the, the body of Christ is at absolute war with the enemy right now all over the world. And, and I know it, it doesn't seem that way at times because of where we live and the freedom we enjoy here and the state in which we live that is not against the word of God. But this is one of the few places left on planet Earth that that is the case. And there are pastors being arrested everywhere. There are people being hunted. We, we heard a lot about what's going on in China, how they are predictively arresting people. They're just taking you because of your social credit score, your social profile, all these different things. They have what they, it's almost like minority report where they think that you're a, a case or a, you have a profile, right, that you could commit a crime. So we're just going to take you and imprison you in advance to protect the rest of the people. 
Well, you can see where that's going to go real quick with, uh, oh, you're a Christian. Oh, and you study the Bible. Okay, well, you're, you are a threat to our society, and you're carrying around a lot of disinformation, and we need to shut that down pretty quick. You can just see it, the writing on the wall, on the horizon. And so better things are ahead, and it's picking up so fast that the time to get your life right with the Lord is now. It just is. There is no better time than right now because you have all of this to look forward to. Jesus wants to pick you up and set a crown on your head. How amazing is that? These are the five crowns laid out in the Bible. The crown of life, crown of righteousness, crown of glory, crown imperishable, crown of rejoicing, and each one of them being tied to something different. And when you sit before him at the Bema seat, and he says, well done, good and faithful servant, and he starts putting these crowns on your head, can you imagine the joy? And this is not an all-inclusive list. I promise you, there's probably an infinite number And because there's so many and Jesus comes back with multiple crowns on his head, you know it has to be in a hyperspace of some kind because you can't stack crowns vertically, right? They'll start to get wobbly. And so there's there's extra dimensions here. There's something the way these crowns interlock that allows you to carry more than two, three, four. And you get to be a part of that with him as a co-heir. Now, when you look at the rewards for the overcomer, to eat of the tree of life, not heard of the second death, hidden manna with a white stone and a new name, power over the nations, white raiment, a pillar and a new name in the new temple of God. You get to sit with Christ on his throne as a co-heir and you get to inherit all things. All of that is for those that are an overcomer of faithfully serving the king in your life. And it it just takes an act of obedience. That's all it takes is for you to be obedient and to pray and to ask him, Lord, what would you have me do? So how are you an overcomer? Well, you remain loyal to God in Revelation 2. You overcome trials and tribulations with while remaining faithful in Revelation 2. Be spiritually zealous for the Lord in Revelation 2 verse 19. You don't deny Jesus in Revelation 3, 8 and 10. And you don't defile your garments, just like in Ephesians, a bride that is without spot, wrinkle, or blemish. So you don't defile your garments from Revelation 3, 4. And you keep the word of his patience in Revelation 3, 10. That's what it's about. It's about finishing strong and going forward and praying on behalf of your land, your families, your schools, your children, they, the prayer is the most underutilized weapon in the armory of the believer. I truly believe. But when you look at Second Chronicles seven fourteen, the tying of the healing of the land is linked to His people. If my people, which are called by my name, and we've been praying for this for a long time in men's Bible study group, and this just absolutely brought me to tears and on my knees when I saw this headline. This was from CNN. Oklahoma GOP governor signs one of nation's strictest abortion bills into law. So Stitt has, in the state of Oklahoma, has outlawed abortion at conception. And so it's illegal. In the state of Oklahoma, and I... I just can't, I could not believe it when I read that headline. And of course, you know, uh, MSM, the mainstream media here, or lamestream media, as our, our good friend Brandon would say, uh, the nation's, look how they put the spin out, the strictest abortion bills. Well, it, 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 call it what you want. It's a bill of life. It's a bill of, we believe in God's creation and that children are fearfully and wonderfully made in the womb as he declared and he knew them before they were even conceived. And this, this doesn't happen without you as a believer going to war in prayer. So this is just the beginning. You guys need to keep praying for other things. There's so much out there. Protection for our kids. Pray continually for our land, that the churches are full. 
that people after these last two years of being vacant and shut down from going in and worshiping, that there is great revival on the back end of this, of people realizing I've got to be in fellowship with other men and women of God from Hebrews 10, 25, forsake not the gathering of yourselves together. So praise God. I, I hope that all of you will go and celebrate this. It's incredible. I, I just don't even know what to say, but the state of Oklahoma is the first one to do this. And it's because of his people on their knees praying out. So if you're here, if you're watching this online and you don't know the Lord, it's really simple. Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It is so simple. It's a city of refuge that you can run to. The gates are always open. The roads are always clear. The bridges are always maintained. It's high up on a mountain so you can see it no matter where you are in the land. It's a city of refuge. And that's who our king is. He's a refuge. And all you have to do is cry out to him. That's it. In Isaiah 118, come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And that's what happens when you make that commitment. You get a white raiment and a place as a co-heir with Jesus before the church goes home. So with that, I'll close us in prayer. If you need anything, there's our email address. Just send us a note. We love to help our people and help all of you. We just love hearing from you more than anything. So with that, Lord, we thank you so much for this time. God, thank you that, Jesus, you are an anchor for our soul and that we get to run in boldly into the throne room behind the veil that was torn, and we get to lay hold of that anchor and cry out, Abba, Father, and we just thank you so very much for that privilege. Lord, I pray that you would be with all of those that couldn't be here today. I just pray a special blessing upon all of those families as they leave here. And Lord, we just praise you for what you're doing in our land. Lord, it is by the cries of your people that they have reached to heaven and you've come down to see what the cry is about. And so, Jesus, as you march from east to west, we pray for this one last revival, this billion-plus soul harvest that, Jesus, you would go forward and you would conquer and that you would tear down those altars of Baal, those altars of Moloch, those altars that people have set up in the land to worship a God that is not a God. You are God. And I pray that you would go forward and tear them down and show this nation who is the rightful king. We love you, Lord. And as we watch expectantly and we are looking up from Luke 21, as we see all of this on the horizon, we are looking up for our redemption draws nigh. And we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.